0: You know, to accuse a person of committing treason against the United States is perhaps the most serious charge you could levy. Uh, and to simply toss that around casually is something that no one should do. Uh, but it's especially appalling uh, if it's the president of the United States.
1: Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Treason, traitor, These are some of the most serious accusations that can be leveled against someone. Yet it has now become commonplace to hear this bandied about by political adversaries. Among those who President Donald Trump has branded as traitors include President Obama, the Mueller investigation, the New York Times, the entire media, former FBI director Andrew McCabe, and all Democrats. A new book on treason lays out what treason is and is not, and talks about why there has been just one person ever indicted in America for treason. We're joined by the author of On Treason, Carlton Larson. He's the Martin Luther King Jr. Professor of Law at the University of California, Davis. Carlton Larson, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you. Very happy to be here. So we've, um, we're a week out uh, or so from this election. Um, as somebody who's an expert on things like treason or use of the term treason, at least, um, what are your thoughts at this moment about where we are in our politics and in our country?
0: It's a, it's a, a, a moment, I think, of both optimism and concern. Um, As someone who supported Joe Biden and who felt that Donald Trump has been an absolute disaster uh, for this country, it's uh, encouraging um, that Joe Biden won the election and he won it convincingly. Um, It is disturbing, however, to see the persistent efforts um, by uh, Republican elected officials uh, to cast doubt on that election um, and to sow seeds of confusion and to persuade people uh, that the election was somehow rigged. Uh, and uh, I think ultimately when, when all the smoke clears, you know, Joe Biden will um, take over uh, the White House and, and that will be that. Um, but in the meantime, uh, this, this transition period is going to be very messy and it's going to be in some cases quite ugly um, and hopefully uh, we can get through it.
1: What are you most concerned about from a legal perspective?
0: Well, I don't think that any of the, the lawsuits really have any substantial merit. Uh, perhaps, the, I suppose, the greatest risk would be if you know, enough sand is sort of thrown into the air to persuade a state legislature to try to take over the uh, selection of the electoral votes, although I think that's actually quite unlikely, and you need to do it in at least three states. So I'm not too worried uh, that at the end of the day, uh, the election result will be different. Uh, What I am worried about is that, you know, things will be gummed up. You know, the money for the transition will be withheld. um, You know, key intelligence that ought to be transmitted to the president-elect is not being transmitted. uh, And just various other ways in which a Biden administration comes in perceived by a large majority of the country as completely illegitimate. Um, when in fact, this is the largest uh, vote share of any challenger to an incumbent president since Franklin Roosevelt defeated Herbert Hoover in 1932. Uh, and it's unfortunate that uh, unfortunately many Americans simply will not believe uh, that the election is legitimate. And one of the things that really makes democracy work is that when, you know, the losers accept uh, that the process was legitimate.
1: Um. I wanna turn to the topic of your book on treason. Um, It seems very relevant. Uh, Since Trump became president, um, some of the people he's labeled as traitors include President Obama, the Mueller investigation, the New York Times, the entire media, uh, the FBI director, Andrew McCabe, Democrats who didn't applaud his State of the Union speech, uh, and all Democrats generally So as an expert on treason, how do you react to this?
0: It's absolutely appalling. Um, You know, to accuse a person of committing treason against the United States is perhaps the most serious charge you could levy against a a human being. Um, You are saying that they committed the highest crime known to the law. It is a capital crime uh, for which this punishment uh, can be death. Uh, And to simply toss that around casually is something that no one should do. Um, But it's especially appalling uh, if it's the president of the United States uh, who is making that accusation. And we have never had uh, a president who has been so recklessly careless uh, with this term uh, as Trump has. And he has, I think, debased it um, and demeaned it and um, made it seem like mere disagreement with the president Uh, is treason, which of course it is not.
1: Well, so this might be uh, the right moment to ask, what is treason?
0: So as a general matter, treason is betrayal of a country. And so every country in the world has some form of treason law. Every country defines it differently. Uh, The United States is unique in that uh, treason is defined directly in our constitution in Article III. uh, And it's limited to levying war against the United States or adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. Uh, And so uh, that's it. Uh, And if something doesn't meet that very strict constitutional test, it can't be uh, made treason by by Congress. Uh, And so that means that there's a lot of things that we might think of as betrayals um, or where a person might even be plausibly described as a traitor in a colloquial sense, uh, but where it simply isn't treason against the United States uh, as a legal matter.
1: How do you view working with a foreign adversary like Russia to undermine a U.S. election?
0: That would not be treason. Um, For a foreign country, uh, for work with a foreign country to count as treason, it would have to be an enemy of the United States. And um, uh, we are not uh, in a state of war with Russia. Now, doing that, working with Russia to undermine an election, would be an exceptionally uh, inappropriate thing to do. It probably violates a whole bunch of other uh, federal criminal statutes. Uh, And I think colloquially we could easily describe it as a betrayal of the United States, uh, but it wouldn't be uh, treason as a matter of criminal law.
1: Are any of the things that you've observed during the Trump administration, uh, the former uh, national security advisor Michael Flynn and his Uh, work for foreign powers while working at the highest levels of the U.S. security system. Um, What are some of the, or any of the things that you've seen rise to levels of, let's say, at least very high concern when it comes to issues of traitors, betrayal, and possibly treason?
0: Well, they certainly are matters of high concern. There's no question about that. Um, The fact of the sort of documented and extensive ties between members of the Trump administration and Russia, the repeated lies uh, about it and uh, many of the connections documented in the Mueller report are uh, exceptionally concerning. Uh, Nothing I've seen though actually rises to the actual level of treason. Uh, I think the closest you could probably um, point to uh, would be uh, arguably uh, Trump's betrayal of the Kurds in Syria. Uh, which was a significant advantage to ISIS. And ISIS is an enemy of the United States. Uh, and if that had been done with the purpose of aiding ISIS, that could have been uh, an act of treason. But I don't think it was done with that pers- purpose. Uh, similarly, um, if Trump had known about the Russian bounties um, uh, for, the, for, the, for the Taliban uh, and had encouraged it um, and had done so with the purpose of aiding the Taliban, against the United States, that could potentially be uh, treason. But again, there doesn't seem to be evidence that Trump acted with the purpose um, of aiding either ISIS or the Taliban. Um, Rather, it's just sort of a general careless and uh, reckless approach to these nations. Uh, And I think a sense, at least with with Syria, of wanting to be out of foreign entanglement. Uh, So it would be a very, very hard case uh, for a prosecutor to prove.
1: You had long accepted what uh, was long the conventional wisdom, which is that no one had ever died or been put to death as a result of a treason charge in this country. But in the course of your research, you discovered that that was incorrect. So tell us the story of the one person in American history who has been put to death for treason.
0: Sure. This is the, um, the one person who was put to death by the federal government under the U.S. Constitution. There have been um, two people under state law since the Constitution and then uh, a handful of people executed during uh, the American Revolution. But since our U.S. Constitution, Article 3, was adopted, only... One person has been executed. And as you noted, this was something that treason scholars simply didn't know. Every work of treason scholarship said that no one had been executed. And this was something that I believed. I wrote it um, in a Washington Post piece in 2017. But as I was researching this book, I discovered that that wasn't true. Uh, And the story is really quite extraordinary. Uh, It took place during the Mexican-American War uh, in 1847, after American troops had Uh, swarmed into uh, New Mexico which was at that time part of the Republic of Mexico Uh, and there was resistance uh, to the American occupation and uh, the generals on the ground announced that New Mexico was now part of the United States and that everyone there was a citizen of the United States and anyone who resisted American military authority was a traitor and would be subject to prosecution for treason Uh, Well, some people, not surprisingly, resisted. And uh, one of them, Hippolito Salazar, was tried and executed for the crime of treason against the United States. Uh, And if you think about this, this is extraordinary. This is a Mexican man who was tried uh, on Mexican soil in the Republic of Mexico for the crime of treason against the United States, a country he had never set foot in. Uh, And when this was discovered that this had happened, Uh, There was a massive outcry in Washington. Members of Congress were appalled. Um, The Polk administration had to concede that it had made a mistake, that technically this man could not have been tried uh, for treason. They said, well, he was a bad guy anyway. He was basically a murderer, so it didn't really matter. It was just a matter of getting the the wording right, Um, but that's not just a minor technicality. That is a very big deal in terms of whether you're actually subject to a treason prosecution or not. Um, And it wouldn't be till 1848 um, with the treaty that ended the Mexican American war that New Mexico formally became part of the United States and the people in New Mexico actually subject to American treason law. And so what it meant was that the one person actually executed for treason, Um, was not subject to American treason law in the first place uh, and had been uh, convicted on a legal mistake.
1: Now, people who were subject to American treason law would have been the soldiers and leaders of the Confederacy who broke out in armed revolt against the United States government and uh, became the adversaries during the Civil War. And it surprised me to learn in your book, there were no treason charges levied against uh, Confederate leaders. How did that happen? How did Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis uh, never face charges?
0: So this was the most widespread act of treason uh, in American history. It's very clear the Confederacy was levying war against uh, the United States. Uh, And so at the end of the war, the problem was, well, what do you do about it? In theory, you could try every single Confederate soldier. Um, for treason. Um, but that was not not realistic. Uh, and clearly you, you don't try the, the little guys uh, without going after the big people first. And so you need to find the very highest leaders of the Confederacy if you're going to do any treason trials at all. They're the ones who really need to be uh, the ones charged. Uh, so Robert E. Lee uh, essentially got away with it because uh, of Grant's very generous surrender terms at Appomattox where he, uh, as part of the surrender, seemed to accept that um, Lee and his army could essentially go back to their farms and uh, not be uh, harmed by the United States in any manner. And so the one reading of those surrender terms was that it precluded uh, treason prosecutions against Lee uh, and the members of the Army of Northern Virginia. So uh, we didn't see any prosecutions of those people. Uh, we did see an indictment, however, of Jefferson Davis, uh, who was the president of the Confederacy. Uh, and if anyone you know, should have gone to trial, it would have been him. And for a lot of Northerners, that was what they wanted, that, that would sort of provide a nice capstone to the Civil War. Um, the president of the Confederacy indicted, charged, and perhaps even executed for treason. But uh, Davis's the legal proceedings dragged on for uh, several years. Uh, there, there was a reluctance, I think, by uh, the judges who would have to do the trial uh, to actually do it. Um, it was set to be in Jefferson Davis's home. Uh, sorry, but his, in the state of Virginia, uh, where the acts of treason had taken place, so there was a problem of finding a, <coughs> uh, you know, a Virginia jury that would convict Davis. Uh, but then ultimately, there was a very bizarre legal ruling from Chief Justice Salmon Chase, uh, which suggested that the Fourteenth Amendment precluded uh, any further. Um, prosecutions of Confederate officers. Uh, and so ultimately the Andrew Johnson administration simply threw in the towel uh, and Davis was allowed uh, to, to walk away with a presidential pardon. Uh, and so the result was that no person was was convicted um, for a role in the Civil War.
1: So today we see uh, folks who I think somehow some may fashion themselves or fancy themselves as the descendants of the Confederacy, and these would be the white nationalist groups who, in fact, use the Confederate flag as a symbol and call for armed uprising or armed resistance against state against state and federal authority. Uh, how does this fit in the spectrum of what constitutes treason?
0: Well, those people are you know waving the flag of. Uh, long dead traitors, which is you know an interesting choice of uh, things to wave. In terms of what they're doing now, m- very little of it, um, I think, rises to a level of outright treason. You don't certainly see, um, so far we haven't seen any sort of armed attempt to overthrow the United States government. Um, there is an interesting case out of Michigan where the um, militia members there attempted to uh, you know, kidnap the governor of Michigan. And I think there's actually a, a plausible argument that if that had been carried out, uh, that could have been seen as treason against the state of Michigan. Um, many states have their own state treason laws and sort of armed uprisings to overthrow a state government uh, can be viewed as acts of levying war against the individual state. Uh, so had the Michigan militia gone forward with this, um, it's possible that treason against Michigan might have been a possible charge. Uh, now, because they didn't actually carry it out, all they had was conspiracy. Uh, and historically a conspiracy to levy war is not treason. You have to actually do it.
1: What, as you look at the, le- so you know, a lot has happened in the legal world, namely the naming of a third Trump Supreme Court justice. Um, what concerns you about that? What do you think are the implications for the Supreme Court and for the country?
0: It's 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 hard to hard to know. I mean, I've been sort of been thinking through that as I get ready to teach um, constitutional law um, in the spring, because um, so 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 many times my answer to students' questions, as well, depends. You know, who's on the court, or it depends on a particular justice. For for a long time, you know, it just depended on what Justice Kennedy thought, or before that, it often things depended on Justice O'Connor, uh, and now there's clearly the center of gravity on the court has shifted. Um, you know, Justice Barrett has been a judge for only a few years. We actually don't know a whole lot uh, about her views on a lot of issues. Uh, and so and there's considerable variety of opinions amongst the sort of six so-called conservative justices uh, on the court. I mean, they have very different temperaments and and perspective on things. So in some ways, it, it, it's going to be hard to know. I mean, I do think there'll, there'll certainly be more uh, more restrictions on abortion upheld that's clearly going to happen. I think there'll be more uh, uh, gun restrictions that are struck down. Um, that seems certain. Uh, I think the First Amendment will probably be used in some fairly aggressive ways to strike down uh, various types of uh, regulation. Uh, and I think you know the, the line of separation between church and state will continue to weaken. Uh, we'll see increased support for um, government money going to religious organizations, um, um, increased likelihood of you know religious displays on government property, uh, things like that. Um, but it's all, all often very hard sometimes um, to predict, you know, say particularly 20 years, 30 years from now, what things are going to look like because there'll be changes in the court and also just changes in the issues um, that come up.
1: What's your view of the role that Bill Barr has played? Um, Many critics are pointing out that he has politicized or arguing that he's politicized the role of the attorney general. Um, What's your view of what's happened to the office of the attorney general under Bill Barr?
0: Uh, I think Bill Barr has been uh, the worst attorney general this this country has ever seen. Uh, He is an absolute disgrace. Uh, And that he has um, repeatedly um, injected himself and injected the Department of Justice Um, into controversies in ways that undermine uh, the rule of law, that undermine the professionalism of the Department of Justice, and that undermine the idea uh, that the department should generally be free uh, from political influence. Um, He insists that he's trying to keep the department apolitical, but every single act that he does uh, belies that uh, assertion, and uh, he increasingly appears to just be a lackey uh, for President Trump, and you know, I never would have thought I would have much good to say about Jeff Sessions, uh, but Jeff Sessions um, wasn't that much of a lackey um, and appeared to have at least some respect uh, for the department's uh, tradition and history of institutional independence. So I think this is quite disturbing. Um, you know, um, presumably Bill Barr will be uh, out the door on January 20th, and the Biden administration can try to begin remaking. Um, the Justice Department. But there's been a lot of damage. You know, a lot of good people have left have resigned um, over what's happened the last few years.
1: Well, explain the line that Barr has crossed. And for people who don't understand what the role of the Attorney General is, how he has changed that.
0: So at least the tradition of, you know, going back to you know, the last, you know, 50 years, or maybe even more than that, um, is that the the Justice Department? Yes, the Attorney General is appointed by the President and is answerable to the President. Can be fired by the President, um, but generally, um, you know, the President doesn't uh, you know sort of issue direct orders to the Attorney General to do this or that, or certainly to take an interest in uh, particular uh, prosecutions, uh, and certainly not to slant. Uh, things in a notably partisan manner. And I think we've seen that from the beginning uh, with the way that uh, Bill Barr, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, misleadingly described uh, the Mueller report uh, in terms of what was done, uh, in terms of the very abrupt uh, conclusion that no uh, obstruction of justice had taken place, despite Mueller documenting that very clearly. Uh, I think um, he is. Opening up of investigations into uh, things for which there's really no evidence at all um, yeah, is a concern. And indeed, the announcement yesterday uh, that um, you know U.S. attorneys could investigate election fraud without clearing it through the traditional channels in the Justice Department, uh, prompting the resignation of a very senior official in the department, um, that's exceptionally. Uh, disturbing. Uh, And there doesn't seem to be an explanation for it other than a a desire to put the thumb on the scale uh, for the Republican Party and for Donald Trump.
1: And when you say that uh, the Department of Justice is not going through the normal channels to investigate election fraud, what are the normal channels? What does that look like?
0: Well, typically what would happen is if there's, you know, valid claim of election fraud, then a, um, a lawsuit would probably be filed in a state court or you would raise the claim with state election officials who could then look into it. Uh, and the Department of Justice guidelines said that the Department of Justice should not, until an election has been certified, uh, be investigating cases of election fraud because there's a risk that that will interfere with and undermine uh, what is going on at the state level. Um, and so what Barr said was, well, that's too restrictive um, and um, we need to be able to do these investigations um, essentially as soon as the election is over, uh, but before certification. Now, I don't think anything will come of this. Ultimately, there, there is no fraud that's going to be uncovered, certainly none that would, would warrant um, overturning an election or anything of that sort. Uh, but nonetheless, it's um, one, one further way in which uh, the Justice Department is being uh, politicized to advance uh, the Republican agenda.
1: What has been your biggest concern on the legal front about what has happened during the Trump years?
0: I think I, there's there's two. I mean, I think the first is just you know, the appointment of a, just this army of federal judges um, who will potentially you know be with us for decades, um, and then secondly, the um, undermining of the department of justice. I mean, I think the undermining of the Department of Justice is more easily fixed. Uh, the The judges are a longer-term issue. Uh, and I think what makes, uh, at least at the Supreme Court level, uh, the appointments so concerning uh, is that if you look at Trump's three appointments to the Supreme Court, uh, they were all appointed by a person who lost the popular vote, and they were confirmed by senators who Uh, do not represent a majority of the American people. And these are the only justices in the history of the Supreme Court about whom that is true. And if we entrust these people with this very awesome anti-democratic power of judicial review, uh, well then they ought to at least have democratic legitimacy in the sense that either the president who appoints them has a majority behind him or her or the Congress or the Senate uh, has a majority behind uh, them. Uh, But these three justices do not. Um, And that I think from sort of, obviously within our system, these are legitimate appointments, but from sort of the larger perspective of whether our system renders legitimate results in a sort of small D democratic sense, um, there's a reason to be concerned uh, about a system that produces uh, results like that.
1: Okay, well, Carlton Larson, I wanna thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Well,
0: thank you, I'm very happy to have been here.
1: Carlton Larson is the author of On Treason. He is the Martin Luther King Jr. Professor of Law at the University of California, Davis. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all shows at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.